is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Death and destruction. Hurricane Ian ripping through Florida, leaving behind immense damage. There are reports that at least 15 people have been confirmed killed across the state. But officials say that number could grow much higher as rescue crews wade through massive floodwaters from Fort Myers to Orlando and Daytona Beach. We go in-depth into one of the worst hurricanes to ever hit that state. Gas prices here at home skyrocketing. We're going to help you figure out the best ways to deal with them. Wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas talked to the January 6th committee. Ginny Thomas answering questions for a while. We'll look at what she might have told them or what they were asking. Russia formally taking land away from Ukraine. Is anyone other than Russia going to acknowledge that? Girls football set to become the newest high school sport in Southern California next year. More and more girls are playing football. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show cult classic, it's going on tour. We'll talk about why it is still so popular. We start with Hurricane Ian. Will Wade is a Bloomberg News reporter covering the storm down in Florida. He's in the Tampa area now after spending most of the day down in the Port Charlotte area, which was around where Ian made landfall. Well, thanks for being with us. Where you are now, uh, the Tampa area, describe what you're seeing there in terms of of, uh, ramifications from the hurricane. Tampa didn't get hit very hard. I was here all day Wednesday. It was raining. It was really blowing wind pretty hard. Trees were moving around. By by, By this morning, there were a lot of branches on the ground, but Tampa was supposed to get a direct hit. And then the storm changed course and went south. So Tampa's all right. I hear that some neighborhoods don't have power. And I got to tell you, there seems to be not a lot of gasoline. I really need to fill up my tank so I can get back out and see what else is going on. But a lot of stations don't have gas. But Port Charlotte is really where I saw most of the damage today. Yeah, and what did you see there? A lot of roads that were flooded, a lot of trees down, um, lots of branches. I saw power lines dangling. You know what was weird is a lot of the intersections, the the streetlights weren't working because there's no electricity pretty much anywhere. The streetlights were gone. They literally had been blown away. Some were dangling down into the intersection, but some just weren't there at all. They're going to have to replace a lot of streetlights and a lot of trees knocked over. I know it's still early in the game here, but is there a an assessment about how well or not well, for that matter, the state in that area may have been prepared for something of this magnitude? You know, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask about how well the state was prepared, but this is definitely one of the biggest storms ever to hit the United States. So I don't know how you can prepare for a storm that comes ashore with with winds of 150 miles per hour. Yeah, I mean, on that note, we've been seeing some people and hearing them and then giving their interviews and saying, you know, this house over here, this building, it had the hurricane windows. It had the roof that was supposed to be to a level of strength. Um, but now it's all gone. Like whole houses are just not on the map anymore. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's destruction. There's going to be more. The storm came ashore in southwest Florida and then pretty much turned north and went straight up right through the middle of the state. I heard it's went through all of the huge, big orange grove growing areas. We'll see how that's handled. I hear that the orange crop took a big hit. Passed right over Disneyland. Disneyland has been closed for the past couple of days. And then it headed east. It went out back to sea. And I think it's going to come back ashore in South Carolina. 
And in terms of um, casualties, deaths, uh, I know the latest figure seems to be uh, 15. I think that's the number. Uh, But I'm gathering that officials have the uh, grim expectation that that number is going to grow. I think that's fair. From what I've seen, I can't imagine that there's not going to be more casualties, I'm sorry to say. They're going to be finding people in you know, flooded attics that they couldn't get out of. That always happens. It's going to take days to figure it all out. But it could be worse. Is there any talk about the modeling and how, you know, you can't always try? They do the best they can, right? They combine everything and they say, here's the track. But like you said, they thought it was headed right for Tampa and it didn't go that way. I mean, really, at the end of the day, if you're anywhere near the evacuation zone, then that's probably just your your cue to go because you never really do know until it comes right ashore. Yeah, you know, it, it's the weather. It, you know, the best models in the world will tell you what it's supposed to be now, and then things will change in the next half hour. I love the National Hurricane Center. They do a great job. And when there's a hurricane set coming, they put out updates every few hours. They are constantly tracking it. So I know on Tuesday morning when I was heading here, it was supposed to be going just to the north of Tampa, which is exactly the worst place for it to be headed to. And by the time I landed in Orlando Tuesday night, it had changed and it was now going south of Tampa, which is why Tampa didn't get such a big hit. But the area south of here really did. Will Wade's uh, Bloomberg News reporter covering the storm there down in Florida. Ian, it's left behind massive destruction in the Fort Myers area, significant flooding in the Orlando area, even though Orlando is inland. We're joined now by Richard Dixon, who lives in the uh, Orlando area. Richard, thanks for being with us. So I guess some people might be thinking, if they are not familiar with Florida, how does Orlando get significant flooding when you're inland? Uh, Well, we're probably maybe a good 100 miles from the area where the hurricane made landfall. Uh, But given the size of the storm, we were getting uh, substantial winds by early morning, mid-afternoon yesterday. Um, And by the time the storm got here, there was so much rain and wind uh, associated with it. And we'd already had a lot of rain in the week leading up to it. The ground was so saturated, water has nowhere to go. And so we've just got the flooding going on right now. These, these, These storms, people think of them as a coastal phenomenon, but Given the size of the state and the size of some of these storms, you can get hurricane force winds pretty far inland very easily. Yeah, take me to last night and what it was like in terms of those winds and how much rain and, and what's it like to, to, to see that. I mean, people are used to like, oh, it's coming in sheets, you know, but then it passes, it goes away. This didn't go away for a long time. Yeah, this this one, uh, I, I lived through Charlie a few years ago, and that was over and done within about seven hours. This, we had easily 20 hours of sustained hurricane tropical storm force winds going on. Um, it just got stronger and stronger as the night went on. Uh, the rain began going horizontally and then falling upward from the force of the rain. Um, and it just would not let up. Um, and even now, we're still getting some of the uh, some of the feeder bands coming through, even though the storm is now off in the Atlantic. Um, so I'm looking out a window right now, and I can still see trees swaying. Uh, rain's coming down. It's uh, We're not totally out of it yet, but the worst is gone. How much would you say the damage is? Uh, hard to say. It seems like the wind damage is not as severe as it was for storms like uh, Charlie and Irma, um, but the water damage is is insane. From what I've seen on the local news, uh, there are areas with chest-deep water, and the water has nowhere to go because the lake systems are all over-flooded right now. So it's just a matter of time, but how long it takes the ground to, to absorb all this. You're looking at cleanup from the damages. You're looking at lost 
income from businesses being closed. So we're, we're probably a good ways away from knowing just what the economic uh, impact of this is going to be. Yeah, when you look at, at the coverage and, and you see other areas of your state and the coastal areas, I mean, when you look at Fort Myers and there's just plots of land that used to be houses or, you know, the, the right. pier is gone. There's boats in roads and they're not supposed to be there. I mean, what goes through your head? Uh, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate. Uh, we, like I said, we had Charlie a few years ago, and that was not even remotely close to what uh, Fort Myers and Sanibel Island are going through, but it was very devastating for us. Um, but again, we were inland. It was a very brief storm. This They had that thing off the coast for hours. It took forever to hit landfall. They just bore so much of the brunt of this, and it's just you know, if I have a little bit of water in my condo when I get home, I'm I'm going to be grateful that I still have a home that's standing to go to because those folks out there have entire lives they need to rebuild now. All right, we're going to head out there, actually. Uh, that's Richard Dixon, lives in the Orlando area. Richard, thanks so much for talking to us. Let's now uh, try to bring in um, Bobby Pratt, who actually is in Fort Myers. Uh, Bobby, uh, pretty hard hit where you are. Uh, yes, definitely. Tell us about it. So the storm hit yesterday uh, around noon. That's when the wind started picking up here and continued late into the evening yesterday uh, until 1, 2 a.m. The winds are still strong, you know. So we had heavy rain, heavy winds. Outside was chaos. We had uh, debris flying through the air on the streets. Uh, I saw some roof uh, roof fly off one of my neighbor's houses. Uh, We had the trees were bent over 90 degrees. We had some uprooting on our property and some of my neighbor's properties as well. You have been going around taking video and, and, and looking at some of the things. Is there help there, or did it take a while to get there after the storm had passed you guys by? Because, you know, you're probably not the only one who stayed, and we've seen people out on the streets. And for a while there, it was like, okay, well, I need I need somebody. I need something. And, and here we are, and, just, and things are destroyed. Yeah, so as I was out in Fort Myers Beach, we had um, Coast Guard helicopters flying overhead. There was like two or three of them, and a Coast Guard C-130 was flying around the island. Um, looking for people that needed help. I mean, the storm surge on Sanibel and Fort Myers, if you've seen the video, it's not survivable if you were there in a single-story home, even a second-story home. So uh, there are emergency responders are now out um, offering help, but 911 was not available um, until the storm had passed. Um, Police officers were on the road. um, Ambulances weren't out, stuff like that. Um, but there's definitely help getting to those who need it right now. Bobby, do you uh, have any friends, relatives who were uh, hurt by this? I don't have any friends or relatives that were hurt by the storm, but I do know that there have been some casualties so far um, on Sanibel and Fort Myers Beach. It's Bobby Fratt there, lives in the Fort Myers area. Bobby, thanks for uh, thanks for talking to us. He's got video on Twitter and, and cruising down one of the avenues here, and there's there's just boats all over the road, and even yeah. up to like the size of like a ferry kind of boat is up there on land. Um, Swimmer, Florida, but spelled S-W-M-U-R-F-L. You can find them on Twitter. And, and of course, as we've mentioned, while Ian has been downgraded to a tropical storm, it is, it is expected to become a hurricane again, and it's kind of swinging back, and now the folks up in the Carolinas are bracing for the same hurricane. Not good. Round two. Yeah. Round two. And a lot of people actually fled Florida to go to the Carolinas to escape the hurricane, and now they're going to get it anyway. Right now, though, gas price is going crazy. Average jumped more than 15 cents a gallon from yesterday in L.A. County. Largest daily increase in 10 years almost. Average now 626. 
refinery maintenance issues being blamed. We've heard that before. So what can we do to minimize things until prices come back down? Ben Preston, automotive reporter for Consumer Reports. Ben, thanks for being here. So, yeah, what do people do past the old, uh, you know, hey, make sure your tires are inflated and uh, then you'll save a mile here, a mile there? Well, I mean, one of the things you can do is look at different apps that can help you find the cheapest gas where you're going. Um, you know, just driving around trying to find the cheapest price isn't always the most efficient thing, but you can use things like Gas Buddy or AAA or uh, even Waze and Google Maps have things that can help you find the best price. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I actually know somebody once who they drove, I don't know, something like, I don't know, 15 miles because the gas station there was about five cents cheaper. And I thought, well, <laughs> I'm not so sure but that's a great bargain. calculator yet. Yeah. Yeah. Back and forth. And, uh, but is it smart also for people to maybe think about if they can consolidating trips? For example, if you normally go to the supermarket, I don't know, three times a week, maybe try to come up with a bigger shopping list and only make one trip in the car. That would save gas, right? I mean, I think it that, that's good advice at any time. I mean, particularly in L.A., where you have to drive all over the place to, to get anywhere, you, you should really kind of like think about, OK, what things are in the same places? And I can go there all at the same time rather than taking one off trips. And then also Consumer Reports, we recommend just kind of slowing down, you know, uh, coasting from light to light uses a lot less fuel than than uh, hitting the gas. And then, of course, on the freeway. The slower you go, the less fuel you use. So if you're going 85 miles an hour down the 405, not that that's ever possible. <laughs> I was um, going to say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you know, I mean, the, the car has to overcome a lot more wind resistance uh, just to keep the power going. In. You know, I was going to so, say the, the speed that people yeah. go on the 405, I would think they'd be saving lots of gas. Mm, you just creep yeah, along. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the... Like gas station credit cards, you know, if I've got a Shell card or a Chevron card or whatever, are those any better in terms of discounts or points or whatever than you get with like a generic cashback option? Those are okay, but we find that uh, the ones that work better are the things you get through your credit card company or uh, from some of the things like Sam's Club or Costco. You can actually use their fuel stations or others, but basically the credit card companies will give you a percentage discount, whereas the gas station cards will give you like, I don't know, however many cents per gallon of a discount. And obviously the higher the price goes, the less of a bite that takes out of your bill, whereas the percentage thing moves with the price. So are people who have electric vehicles, are they laughing at us now? Um. I I suppose so. I don't know that they're nationwide that there are enough of them to really make a difference yet. But uh, pr uh, sales have been increasing over the past few years, particularly out there in California. All right, Ben Preston there. He's the automotive reporter for Consumer Reports. Ben, thanks. Yeah, I, I think I maybe it's just me when I pull out of a gas station with very high prices and I pass like a an electric car. I get this feeling that the driver is like laughing. Yeah, I know a few. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is KX In Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas met earlier today with the January 6th committee. The interview with Ginny Thomas lasted about four and a half hours. Members of the panel have long said that they were interested in speaking with her, particularly after CNN first reported text messages that she exchanged with former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. This was prior to the January 6th uh, overturning or about the overturning of the election. With us now is Scott McFarlane, who's congressional.
congressional correspondent for CBS News. Scott, thanks for being with us again. So she had expressed, uh, Mrs. Thomas, that is, uh, a desire to talk to the committee. She almost seemed anxious at one point. Do we know whether or not the committee was satisfied with her answers? Or do we even know what she said? Satisfied? We don't know. That she answered questions, we do know. Both the chairman of the panel says she answered questions, and in her statement after the interview through her attorney, Ms. Thomas says she answered all of the committee's questions. I'll note this, though. There are any number of witnesses before this January 6th Select Committee here in Washington who have chosen to do their interviews or their meetings virtually, via Zoom or via teleconference. Jenny Thomas chose to walk past the TV cameras in the O'Neill U.S. House Office Building to be seen entering this interview, an indication that she chose to be shown partaking in this process. They have plenty to ask, right? We mentioned the Mark Meadows tax. There's also contacts between her and elections officials, at least in a couple states, right? Arizona, Wisconsin. Yeah, in each case, advocating for efforts to overturn the results of a lawful American election. Um, she also said during her interview today, we're told by the chairman of the committee that she, yes, she continues to discuss her concerns about fraud and irregularities in the 2020 election and continues to subscribe to those beliefs, according to what she said today, according to the chairman of the panel. So, yeah, this is right in the wheelhouse of what this committee is looking into, efforts to overturn the election and the perpetuation of this myth that the election was fraudulent. But the clock is ticking on this committee, right? Yeah, it's the 11th hour already, and they've just secured one of their most sought-after interviews. It's likely, though not certain, they're going to schedule a final public hearing, the one that was supposed to happen yesterday but was postponed due to the hurricane. But because the clock is ticking, because the election is less than six weeks away, because this committee expires at the end of the calendar year, there is precious little time to do another hearing to show what they've found And it may be difficult to land on a date everybody can agree upon. The delay not doing yesterday, that was because of the storm or that was because of waiting to get Ginny Thomas's answers? Their statement was it was because of the storm. And it's easy to believe that they would have trouble having the optics of a side-by-side view of damage and destruction and their hearing. It's something any committee, any public event would want to avoid. Um, But it's difficult to find a date because they're all gone from Washington at the end of this week to go campaign for re-election. And it's difficult to bring everybody back. It's also difficult to not seen as, be seen as craven if you get too close to a national election and have a hearing of this sort. So do you think they find a date or just pivot to whatever report they're inevitably going to send, which is the end game for this? And then, you know, there's always the question of, our charges referred and 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 we asked all the members and they say to you what well we know for certain they have to issue a written report and they've long said that is their valid victory that is going to be their official record what everybody should look to to get the official and comprehensive findings of their investigation they are legislatively required to issue a report same legislation that created this panel requires the report If I were a betting man, if I were a betting man, I'd bet they have another hearing because it gives them relevance. They certainly want to have an audience that's large for what they've found, but it's going to be a narrow needle to thread. No, we had a discussion with somebody the other day about if they have that that sort of final public hearing after all of this, after all of these witnesses, do they have to sort of end it in sort of a spectacular way in terms of the information that they give to the public? 
I think that's the complication. I think they have they have difficulty coming to a consensus because they are nine legislators trying to get agreement on everything. That's difficult in any circumstance. But when it's the final hearing, which this is what it appears it will be, everybody wants everything. And it's difficult to come to an agreement because there's no next hearing to push things off to. This is another calculus, but also another complication for getting a hearing on the books. I wouldn't be surprised if they just forego it and issue the written report. Scott McFarlane, congressional correspondent for CBS News. Scott, thanks. Russia took uh, Crimea from Ukraine. That was back in 2014. It's now looking to take more territory from the country as the two are, of course, at war. Russia planning to formally annex the occupied regions of Ukraine following this uh, referendum vote that Ukraine, the U.S. and others have denounced as illegal and rigged. Seems like a major escalation. Joe Dressen, senior program associate to the Kennan Institute on Russia and the U.S. at the Wilson Center. Joe, thanks for being with us. So if nobody outside of Russia believes that those people actually want to be in Russia, where do we go from here? Well, we go where we went last time Russia did this in 2014, as you mentioned, Crimea is annexed. Uh, we, uh, being the West, thought that we would never recognize that annexation, and that's got a historical precedent. The United States never recognized uh, the Soviet Union annexing the Baltic states, three Baltic states, all three now members of the European Union and uh, NATO. So uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a thing that Russia tries to do from time to time. It uh, takes territory declares it annexes it. There's limited uh, recourse to what the United States can do, uh, but what we can do, we do do. Uh, And we start by not recognizing that illegal annexation in the first place. Does this move in any way uh, intensify the conflict or make it that much more dangerous? Or is it just, as, as you sort of alluded to before, just a kind of familiar tactic that Russia tends to do from time to time? I think what Russia is trying to accomplish by taking this territory and annexing it is implying that now that this is Russian territory, any attacks upon it can plausibly be considered uh, an attack on all of Russia and thereby might be uh, responded to with potentially nuclear weapons. That is what they're trying to sort of communicate to the rest of the world and to Ukraine. The issue with that is that uh, we understand that uh, Russia is uh, run by at least, if not rational actors, actors with uh, an instinct of self-preservation. Uh, I should also point out that uh, Ukraine has already launched strikes on Russian-held territory in Belgorod, in 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 Crimea. Uh, there have been military strikes, whether it's done through uh, sort of uh, you know sort of commando teams or what have you. The, the, the details are unclear. Can't wait for the book or the movie. But it's uh, you know it's it's not. A, a terribly credible threat from Russia, but is a very concerning one. So, and one we have to take seriously and make sure that we communicate. And I think the Biden administration has been doing this, communicating that any use of nuclear weapons, even tactical nukes, whatever, would be met with a uh, very uh, serious response from from the West. Yeah, and Putin has telegraphed all this before, you know, reminding people what he has. But you don't share the concern that this is some some actual thing that that could happen that those could be used if Ukraine goes and tries to take back these, quote-unquote, take back their own land? You know, it's, I, I never say never with Russia, right? But it's uh, not terribly likely, but it's it's of enough concern that we have to communicate in the strongest possible terms. And I think, again, we've been doing this. Uh, the consequences that would ensue, it would not be worth it for Russia. 
What, what exactly would those consequences be? I mean, when people talk about if they do, say, use a, a tactical nuclear weapon, that would be met by a very serious response from the West. What is a very serious response in that scenario? Uh, it, it beggars imagination. But one thing that could happen is that the United States military could actually directly intervene in uh, the territory of Ukraine. Or uh, they could do asymmetrical strikes on different Russian interests, uh, including cyber attacks, including, uh, you know, further arresting diplomatic property of the Russian Federation in other parts of the world. Uh, there's, there's a panoply of things that can be done. I think the, the Biden administration and, and other Western leaders are trying to uh, keep their uh, rhetorical powder dry, as it were, uh, in terms of what, what they commit to, because they don't want to commit to an action. Uh, but I think they are probably communicating those to the Russians, just not to the media. Yeah, I mean, the fear, as you know, about any type of direct boots on the ground or starting to fight is like, that's a real slippery slope to, to World War Three. It really is. But uh, the use of nuclear weapons on Russia's part would be the major step on that direction. The United States, NATO, has zero interest in involving their personnel on the ground. That being said, once it gets escalated uh, to tactical nuclear weapons or even a demonstration explosion over the Arctic Circle or, or something crazy like that, who knows? Things That's when that's when nightmare scenarios start to play out very quickly. Uh, I think we can hope, though, by past uh, performance, uh, again, witnessing Ukraine's already uh, taken strikes on Crimea and and into a munitions depot in, inside of Russia, that that probably won't happen. It's not the most likely outcome. But are we at the mercy of somebody doing something stupid? We've been at the mercy of somebody doing something stupid, and that's what Putin's been doing for the last month ever since he launched the invasion. Uh, I think that, you know, hope of hopes is that uh, if not Putin, then other, shall we say, forces within the Russian government will, or the Russian military, for that matter, uh, will understand that there's a difference between Russia's long-term national interests and uh, Putin's frustration slash uh, self-awareness of what, what his future might lay. May lay. Right. That was my next. Well, he may be willing to explode everything. I don't think everybody in Russia is. You anticipated my next question, which was, is, is there some scenario where, you know, if and if it gets close to this, this use of a tactical, tactical nuke or something like that, or if this just grinds on to the point where it, there's even more resistance, that there's someone who's not Putin there who goes, this is enough. It, this is your war and we all know it. And that's it's not going to fly anymore. Yeah, it's a danger. And again, the danger is not just that uh, to Putin that, you know, he's going to get replaced and then things are going to calm down. The danger to us is somebody other than Putin takes over and they try to double down somehow. Um, who knows? I mean, Russia's, uh, uh, you know, they have hundreds of thousands of people fleeing abroad. There's a traffic jam, you know, dozens of kilometers long uh, at the at their border with Georgia of, of military aged uh, males trying to flee the country. Uh, they're flying to Kazakhstan. They're trying to get through the remaining opening at, in Finland. Uh, Russians are, are uh, voting with their feet. It can be said that the mobilization uh, is when war started for Russian citizens. In real, in reality, uh, the the war in Ukraine may have started in February for the Ukrainian citizens. Um, it's 
it's a it's a serious time for those in Russia. Uh, Putin is running out of options. Joe Dressen, senior program associate, the Kennan Institute on Russia and the U.S. at the Wilson Center. Joe, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Football has long been a sport dominated by men and boys, but chimes are changing quickly. More and more girls starting to play flag football against each other. Now, if you're not familiar with flag football, it's played without the bulky pads and helmets. You tackle someone by kind of grabbing a flag on their waist. The high school sports governing body here in Southern California, the CFI uh, Southern Section, just approved making girls flag football an official sport to start next fall. CF, CIF, I should, I said CFI, didn't I? Mm-hmm. I did. Like the I thought, TV show, but yeah, with an but F. it's not. <laughs> but it's not the TV show. <laughs> CIF state will likely approve it soon. There are already some teams out there. Jacob Menez coaches girls flag football at Redondo Union High School. That's in Redondo Beach. He's with uh, two of his uh, athletes, Olivia D'Angelo and Alia Young. Uh, Jake, let's start with uh, you. So this is a pretty exciting time, right, for those who are involved in this particular sport. Tell us what it means. Uh, It means a lot to us, to be honest with you. Um, You know, creating this team last year, we didn't know how far it could go, but now we know how, you know, there's, it's, it's indefinite. We can go as high as the sky. I mean, we have a great time. We have a great team, a great set of girls. Um, You know, it's really popular. It's blowing up. We're just really excited to get this new season underway. And we're, you know, really appreciative that CIF voted it to be sanctioned as a CIF sport. How did the team actually come about? Whose idea and how'd you, how'd you actually make it happen? Yeah. So we were approached by the Los Angeles Rams and the Los Angeles Chargers uh, last year, fall around this time. Um, They were saying that they were going to put together a pilot league um, for girls flag football. I immediately jumped on the opportunity um, as I got approached by administration to want to coach it. I flew the program via, you know, school announcements and emails. We had about 35 girls try out. We took 12. Um, the rest is history. Olivia, what made you want to uh, play flag football? Um, when I was in eighth grade, I had started playing on the boys team for flag football, and I really enjoyed it. But then going into freshman year, I couldn't play on the team anymore. And I was kind of upset about it, but I moved on. And then I got the email from my coach. and. I thought it was a great opportunity and I was excited to get back into playing. When you got that email, was this something like in the back of your head? We thought, you know, I wish there was a, a girls team I could play on, but, but, oh, well, it, it hasn't happened. And then that springs up in your inbox. You're like, oh, wait, yes, this is perfect. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I remember like a few days before that email had sent out, I was talking to like my parents about it and I was like, I wish we could keep playing. And then I got the email and I was just so excited. Aaliyah, what does all this mean for you? they had done the flag football last year and I wasn't like I was doing soccer and stuff so I wasn't a part of the program so when there had a tournament event at the end of last year and Coach Menes saw me and he invited me out to these events and he just like put me on the team and took me in and the team was amazing the energy and the positivity was just amazing for me. Coach, you had no problem getting these two on the team. Was there any trouble getting recruits? I mean, was there ever a time where they're like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a boy thing. I don't know if I want to play football. Yeah, no. I mean, um, last year when I flew the program, we had about 30 girls try out for one day. Uh, and this year we had two days worth of tryouts because we had about 40 girls a day. So it was more, <laughs> it was harder for me to make cuts. I mean, that whole weekend I stayed up till one, two in the morning trying to see 
who would be at the best at what position and how I could filter these girls on offense and defense. So we ended up taking um, 18 girls out of the two days of 40 um, because we're allowed a maximum roster of 20. Does this ultimately lead to a lot more funding? Um, I would believe so. I mean, I'm not in the right, you know, space to say more funding technically. Um, I don't know where it would be going from here. I just know it's going to be a CIF sport. I believe, um, you know, Redondo Union High School takes pride in their sports and their programs. So I would imagine that we would be up there, you know, with the popularity and hoping that we can go ahead and further this sport to the future. I mean, I think we're on a great path as it is. I mean, we are the trailblazers of this sport. So we're looking forward to what the future brings. Is it going to be, um, once they really get going, fall sport, spring sport? When, where do they put it? Uh, they would put it as a fall sport. So my goal for it, um, for our school at least, um, would to be to have our games before the um, the boys Friday night lights, kind of like a Friday night lights before. Um, so realistically, we would play a game, you know, at 5 p.m., have that same crowd, the same student section, the same energy that the boys get. Um, and then, you know, it's just kind of it kind of happens from there. And then we get off the field and then the boys come on and warm up and they do their Friday night. So it's, you know, it's it's Friday night lights for two games instead of just one. Great. Jake Jimenez coaches the girls flag football team at uh, Redondo Union High in Redondo Beach. And uh, two of the players, you heard them, Olivia D'Angelo and Aaliyah Young. Thanks to all of you. We are, in fact, doing the time warp again. It's 2022, but it might soon feel like 1975. That's because the Rocky Horror Picture Show is going on tour to celebrate the film's 47th birthday. Screenings complete with live shadow casts. Coming to L.A. next month after 47 years, still major appeal for the cult classic. Larry Vizell runs the Rocky Horror Picture Show fan club. Perfect person to talk to. Also a shadow cast performer. Larry, thanks for being with us. So what what is the appeal that has turned this into, you know, one of those cult classics? Uh, it's so hard to define, but I mean, uh, number one, uh, great story. Number two, great music. And number three, audience participation. I mean, it's a perfect trifecta, right? But Gener- it's really now a kind of generational thing because 40, was it 47 years? So it's a whole new yep. generation. Why is it appealing to some people now, the very same content that perhaps in some cases appeal to their parents? Well, a few reasons. Number one, it's, it's uh, the story is so much uh, archetypal, right? It's, it's really the story of even biblically adam and eve in the garden of eden right brad and janet are going to this scary castle and their eyes are opened by frank with a forbidden fruit uh and it's the same sort of thing uh and that story just translates over and over again through the generations and it's if you look at the people who are coming to the show the people who discover it as teenagers now uh are their their minds are blown by oh my god i can't believe this thing has existed for so long and i haven't ever heard of it <laughs> is it fun uh, to look out on the, the crowd parents... sometimes and, and see like 25 year olds and <laughs> watch their faces is it fun to look out of the crowd and see like 25 year olds and watch their faces oh yeah oh yeah yeah watch watch what they're what they're going through um just to just to see what, what especially when tim curry takes off his cape on the screen it's just this this moment of shock from the audience uh and then to see the shadow cast do exactly what's going on on the screen uh it's it's like a 3d experience you can't possibly replicate in any other way i'm curious though because it is 47 years and and times change and and uh, uh, social issues obviously change in a period of almost about half a century are there people that you encounter who object to the content who maybe are offended by it well, yeah, of course. Uh, there's definitely people who are offended by the content. There were people who were offended by the content 47 years ago, and now there's people who are offended by the content now. 
that doesn't mean that it's still not a welcoming and inviting place for everyone to come in and experience it. Something's never changed, right? No matter how long it's been. Um, right. Did the shadow cast thing, you know, live performers reenacting or, or even singing, did that start with this or, or was it somewhere else first? I know it, it kind of evolved from this. So this is where it, it kind of started. Um, you know, there were obviously Rocky Horror started as a play before it started as, as a movie. Um, and it, it lent itself to uh, just feeling like you're part of the experience. Um, but the theatricality of it translated into going to movie theaters and being on the midnight circuit. They found that the same people were going week after week. And then those same people started interacting with the movie. You know, some people would come dressed up like their favorite character. And then another person would yell something at the screen. And then someone said, oh, that person yelled something at the screen. Let me yell something at the screen and <laughs> come up with their own clever lines to yell every single week until here we are 47 years later and things are being shared on the internet, you know, and, and people are saying a line one week in, in one part of the world. And then uh, on the entire other side of the globe, the next day, someone's yelling the same line. Do you know how many times you've actually seen it? I lost count. Uh, I started going in the early nineties. Um, it was July 4th, 1992 is when I first went. And I never really kept count, but it's, it's, quite a lot for people who want to go to this one maybe they maybe they haven't been where everybody's really into it what should they expect uh i i want you to go in without looking up anything about what rocky horror is and forget everything i just said on this interview um <laughs> okay but yeah i mean really going in with a with without expectations is probably the best way uh and if it's meant for you it's meant for you uh it is a wild and crazy good time and that's that's what you can expect, I suppose, is, is lots of fun and uh, lots of envelope pushing and just a really good time. Are you getting audiences now? Is it getting audiences now where you have parents and their kids? All the time. Yeah, there are plenty of times where parents bring their kids, grandparents bring their kids who bring their kids. Um, I've been to a, a show where we had uh, four generations uh, and, you know, that one lady uh, was very hmm. old, but it was... Uh, <laughs> it was it was a really fun time and and it was you know i think you have to make sure that that as a parent one of the questions we get all the time is what's the right age to bring my kid to the show and i can't decide that for you it's an r-rated movie um but if you as a parent want to bring your child to a show uh that's entirely on you uh, i suggest in that case maybe watch the movie beforehand and see if it's appropriate uh but it's a it's a classic so, is it also yeah. just like going in and, and, you know, people bring prompts and they throw stuff and they yell. And like you said, I mean, is it an excuse to just for like, for however long that is just to like let loose a little bit and be silly and have fun? Absolutely. Uh, the opportunity to throw stuff in a movie theater uh, is just, you know, it's very freeing. Uh, you, you get to throw rice, toast, toilet paper, uh, all that fun stuff. The, uh, the casts have stuff that they sell. If you don't bring stuff from home, they have stuff they you can buy. Uh, at the show in uh, Los Angeles, it's the uh, the at the La Mirada Theater, I think it is, and they're doing. Um, they have Midnight Insanity as the shadow cast, and they're they're going to be putting on a fantastic show. You know, uh, I'm, cur really I'm, I'm curious because although I suspect you couldn't duplicate uh, what it accomplished, but that's never stopped Hollywood before. How come something as successful has never been have a you know a sequel done? So there was a sequel. There, there was, was a sequel in, in 1981. It was called Shock Treatment. Oh. Uh, it was called the the equal, not the sequel, but it really was originally written as a sequel. 
Um, and then there was a writer strike and uh, or an actor strike, but they had they couldn't film the movie in the U.S. And then they had to change everything and it got filmed in the U.K. and it didn't quite have the same appeal. It was more uh, uh send up of reality television before reality television existed. And it's kind of grown its own cult cult, uh, cult following as well. So huh. it's good for trivia night. Yeah. Larry Wiesel runs the Rocky Horror Picture Show fan club. Larry, thanks. Yeah, I didn't know there was a sequel. There you go. Apparently nobody else did either. <laughs> Except for that cult following. Yeah. All right. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow for Friday.